My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, and welcome to a History of Egypt podcast mini-episode, Love Songs. Today we look at some romantic writings from Egypt's new kingdom, and how the ancients sang of their passions, flirtations, and romances. From that first rush of the heart to the sweet promise, Egyptian texts give us wonderful glimpses at their innermost feelings. It is time for some affairs of the heart. Are you ready? Every relationship begins with that first rush. The accelerated heartbeat, the tingle in your stomach, the warm feeling in your heart which makes you suddenly realize, oh, I like this person. The Egyptians experienced that feeling every day, of course. And like any good romantic, some of them put pen to paper and turned their thrumming infatuation into elaborate poetry. Like most poems, Many of them extol the beauty and virtues of the one whom they desire. Quote, My beloved is unique, with no equal, more beautiful than any one. Behold, she is like the star, rising at the beginning of the good year, dazzling, excellent, fair of complexion. She is beautiful when eyes behold, her lips are sweet when speaking, she has no excessive words. End quote. Ah, sweet desire. The singer, and these were usually songs rather than poems in the modern sense, talks about things of which he cared deeply. As he did so, he unwittingly captured some aspects of the Egyptian ideal around love. For instance, he refers to his beloved as fair of complexion. Now what this means is that the lover is seen as the sort of woman who doesn't need to go outside much either because she is too wealthy to need to, or because her craft was something more useful, weaving, for instance. To the status and prestige-obsessed Egyptians, an ideal lover was sufficiently well set up that they wouldn't need to spend any time in the fields, or traipsing around in the hot sun. Thus, fair complexion implies comfortable lifestyle, and a degree of status to which any lover might aspire. The singer also refers to his love having no excessive words. Now this might sound like a desire that your partner be quiet and unobtrusive, but it's actually a bit more universal than that. The literate Egyptian was fed on a diet of religious texts and moral philosophy. One of the common threads in that ancient wisdom is that, where possible, 
it is better to be sparing with your words. You know the old saying, it is better to keep silent and be thought a fool than to open one's mouth and remove all doubt? Something like that. To the Egyptian, at least of the middle class, a good person of either gender was the sort of person who spoke when necessary, who was not excessively loquacious. From this, we get an ideal lover who has a refined sense of reserve. She is educated and philosophical enough to consider her words and speak only when appropriate, not just to fill the silence of a household at rest. Moving on from idealism, the singer also starts cataloguing the reasons why his beloved is, to him, just as beautiful as the gods themselves. Quote, Unique is my beloved with no second. Long of neck, fair of breast. Her hair is like true lapis lazuli. Her arms surpass gold in luster. Her fingers are like lotus flowers. Wide of hips, slim of waist. Her thighs stress her beauty. Balanced of stride when she walks the earth, she seized my heart in her embrace. She makes the necks of all men turn in order to look at her. Happy is every person that embraces her, being like the first of all lovers. Coming forth, she appears like the distant one, the unique one. End quote. I particularly like the section of the song that says, She makes the necks of all men turn in order to look at her. That is such a universal concept. The head-turner, the sort of person who, walking down the street, looks good, looks fine. The singer nearly loses his mind. I think that's something we can all understand. Some people are just ridiculously good-looking. Apparently, the singer is chasing one of these. The physical attributes of this ideal lover are dialed up to eleven. Her hair is like lapis lazuli, her arms like gold and fingers like lotus flowers. These are features that we would normally associate with the gods rather than mere mortals. I don't know about you, but I have definitely been in a position where a lover, at certain moments, seems to be above and beyond anything here on earth. The Egyptian singer knew that feeling, and then some. Now assuming that he didn't screw it up, the infatuated soon became the attached. The move from hopeful to established relationships was, like any, filled with a wonderful honeymoon period. The love songs which followed this were packed with adoration. Quote, The beloved has come, my heart rejoices. My arms are open to embrace her. My heart is happy in its place like a Nile fish in its pond. O oh, night, you are mine forever, since my lady has come to me. End quote. Ah, those warm early nights of a happy relationship. All whispered nothings, tender embraces, and the overriding glow of infatuation. The world seems to burst with happiness, the nights in each other's arms last forever, and every sight of them is a joy to one's eyes and one's heart. These are the golden days, when the future is bright, and surely nothing can go wrong. Quote, When I embrace her, her arms spread over me. I am like one who is in the land of Punt. It is like macy flowers, which have become a potion, and whose smell is like laudanum. End quote. Have you ever been so in love that you felt intoxicated, as if your lover's very scent was a most wonderful drug? The Egyptian singer had, 
He describes being enveloped in his lover's aroma and drowning in the sweetness of her smell. He compares this experience to being in the land of Punt, sort of the archetypal exotic area full of spices and rich experiences. In the same way that we might light an incense stick to sweeten our home, the singer feels that his lover's mere presence is a heady mixture of sensual pleasures. In the end, he can only compare it to laudanum, that tincture of opium which has been the tool in trade of hedonists for centuries. Stripping away the romance and the sensuality, what the Egyptian is experiencing is really nothing more than powerful pheromones, and that unique appeal of lovers who are, physically, ideal for us to breed with. But hey, let's not let the mundane get in the way of the passionate. With our head swimming from the lover's scent, and our veins swirling with opiates, we continue down the road of desire. The relationship is now moving steadily, and both lovers are drunk on the endorphins and passion that they feel for each other. A chaste embrace soon gives way to physical passion. What follows is a poem drenched in sexuality, as the singer tells his audience of the carnal pleasures. Quote, When I am kissing her and her lips are open, I am ecstatic, even without beer. Oh, how the morning is fulfilled! Menket, the beer goddess, is prepared within my lover's mouth, leading me with ecstasy to her bedroom. Come close, so that I may speak to you. Place fine linen between her legs, and spread royal linen for her. Take care of the white linen for adornment, as for the care of her limbs. Her limbs are like those soaked with camphor oil." End quote. Continuing that trope of intoxication, the singer speaks of Menket, the goddess of beer. But his use of this idea is quite novel. Basically, he says that his lover's kiss is so wonderful that he doesn't even need beer to feel the heady thrill. In fact, he suggests that this kiss is so good, it's as if Menket has set up residence and is making him drunk just from his lover's mouth. That is, well, that's just an excellent image. Raw sexuality aside, there is one element of this song that's quite interesting. The singer tells of placing white linen between the legs of his partner, which reminded me of that cliché where Orthodox Jews allegedly use a sheet for sexual intercourse. That cliché is, incidentally, totally bogus, a result either of misinterpreting the function of some garments, or simply urban legend that found root among the less tolerant. But I still thought of it when I first read this song, and it was only after some good research that I learned how fleeting that similarity really was. So yeah, fun fact of the day for those of you who, like me, thought the cliché might have had some truth. It doesn't. Egyptian sex was, presumably, just like ours. Sweaty, passionate, sometimes slow, sometimes dynamic and uninhibited. Hopefully, both partners were fully satisfied by the end. For the sake of a happy ending, I'm going to assume that is the case here as well. So the moment of physical union has been achieved, and the Egyptian lover is infatuated with his conquest. But this has all been told from a very male-oriented perspective. Before we go thinking that all Egyptian love songs are fantasies about women, there are plenty of materials telling the other side of the story. Take this wonderful song, for instance. Quote, 
I fix my gaze upon the outer door, behold, for when my lover comes to me. My eyes are fixed upon the path, and my ears listen, that I may throw myself into the arms of Pa Mehi when he arrives. Pa Mehi is a male name, so this song is either composed by a woman for her beloved, which is awesome, or it is a song written by a man, extolling his love for another man, also awesome. Either way, it's a refreshing break from the stereotypical love song. We continue. I have set devotion to my lover as my only desire. My gaze is directed only at him. But my heart will not be still. It has sent me a messenger swift of foot, which comes and goes to tell me that my lover has wronged me. In short, that he has found another, and she is wondrous in his eyes. You can almost taste the spite in that last line. She is wondrous in his eyes. As if the singer is dripping with venom at the mere thought of it. It seems as though our singer is experiencing a moment of great doubt that their beloved might have fallen for someone else. Is this an actual response to circumstance or an attack of doubts? Once again, we resume. She is wondrous in his eyes, but pa, what of it? Will the wiles of another drive me away? End quote. This song is delightful, both for the refreshing change of its perspective, and also for the more reflective quality. It is easy to imagine the singer sitting in her house waiting for her beloved to come pay her a visit. But when the minutes turn to hours and the night drags on, she begins to wonder, has he forsaken her? Perhaps a friend has passed on some cruel gossip that Pa Mehi has been seen with another woman. It is a cruel blow, but the singer endures. She will not be defeated by some floozy. She will endure this moment of fear. Jealousy and anxiety, those go hand in hand with love sometimes. If the foundation of the relationship is uncertain, or the mind has yet to make itself secure and comfortable, Such feelings can assail us so easily when we fear, even momentarily, that we have been betrayed. The singer shows a wonderful endurance and stability to carry on. Fortunately, she gets her desire. Quote, The voice of the dove speaks, saying, The day dawns, where are you going? Cease, bird, stop prattling at me. I found my lover on his bed, and my heart was more than happy. We said to each other, never shall I be parted from you. With my hand in yours, I shall wander with you through all the best places. He has chosen me as the foremost of beauties, and he will never wound my heart. End quote. That poem technically comes before the other one in the order that they are written on the papyrus. But I couldn't bear to leave our singer on a down note, so I had to swap them. Love is, many a time, a fiction that we tell ourselves to make close what is separate. Just as every kiss seems to promise a lifetime of happiness, so the Egyptian lovers could say to each other, never shall we part. I sincerely hope that the second song came true, but I do worry that it is the first one which was the ultimate result. If those two poems actually come in reverse order, They tell of a love that began happily, but then ended in doubt. I suppose that's fair. Not every relationship is smiles and sunshine. And in the world of the ancient Egyptians, love could tear you apart. Love and circumstance. 
Our last song for today tells of a lover whose partner, or intended partner, is far away from them. They are separated by the Nile, perhaps because one of them is out of town for work. The singer now speaks of his pining and the lengths he would go to to join up with his beloved once again. Quote, The love of my beloved is on yonder bank. The river has devoured my limbs. Noon is strong at the time of the flood, and a voracious crocodile is waiting on the sandbank. I went down to the water to wade through the inundation. My heart was confident on this bank. I found the crocodile like a mere mouse, and the floodwaters were like land to my feet. It is her love that makes me strong. She will cast a water spell for me. I see the one whom my heart loves standing right before me. End quote. Ah, love, empowering us to surpass crocodiles, walk on water, and cross rivers just to be with our favourite. As every good lover knows, physical obstacles are no true barrier. Love inspires determination, and together they conquer all. The lovers separated genre is a big one, and I'll return to it when we do a sequel to this mini-episode next year. Far more than any other, the idea of separation and the longing it inspires are one of the big literary tropes in Egyptian love songs. This one is a particularly good example. The singer believes that his lover will cast a water spell for him. The water spell, or Hesu Mu, is an ancient practice done by priests and cattle drivers to protect the herds as they crossed bodies of water. The spell was meant to repel crocodiles or other threats, and keep the animals safe as they approached the Nile or lakes. When the singer uses it, he is suggesting that his lover is like a guardian to him, a protector who will help him achieve great things. So the reunification of singer and lover is a shared act. Their love could overcome even physical resistance. The love songs of the New Kingdom are a massive literary corpus. I've only scratched the surface here, but next year we will return to the field. As we move on in our story, the lives and loves of these ancient peoples are going to become clearer and clearer. For now, it is time to return to the main narrative. I'm quite glad at how the timing of this mini-episode turned out, as we introduced the great Queen T, love of Amunhotep III's life, we also got a chance to explore the romances of the ordinary man and woman. Love songs are one of my favourite Egyptian genres. I'm excited to bring you more. For now, on with the story. See you soon! What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.